Welcome back, you absolute legends. Thank you so much for joining me today for my conversation with Tessa Dunlop. She is a presenter, a best-selling author, she's got a doctorate in history, and honestly, she's one of the loveliest guests that I've spoken to in such a long time. She joined me to chat about Army Girls, which is her newest book, which tells the stories of 17 women who served in World War II. Now, throughout the pandemic last year, Tessa made friends with and interviewed these women to shine a light on the forgotten involvement of women who were no more than just girls at the time in World War II. We answer questions on what the conscription of women actually means, whether or not it's offensive that women couldn't fire weapons in the war, and how many women really contributed to Britain's war efforts, and much more, including stories of some of the women that she spent time with last year. It's an amazing conversation, and I can't wait for you to get into it. I'm sure you may be, like me, a little bit ignorant to the information that Tessa shares on this podcast. Now, before we get into it, in the interest of keeping this podcast going, keeping me fed and keeping everything watered, the sponsors of the show. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, they provide an online therapy service. Therapy is one of the most important things I've ever done in pursuit of personal development. It has enabled me to understand myself. It has enabled me to feel a little bit more comfortable being vulnerable and being honest about my emotions, which is something we should all learn to get a grip of. Because whether we like it or not, our emotions are pretty much going to run our lives. The best thing to do is having a chat with a therapist. They are a professional. They can help you filter through what is relevant for you and what is just a story. If you're considering therapy, head to the link in the description. It will take you to betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. You'll get 10% off your first month with them. It is worth noting as well, if you have friends or family members who are in need of therapy and they don't listen to the podcast, it's not just exclusive, you can give it to them as well. The more people that go to therapy, the better really, because I think that will make for a better world. So the website is betterhelp.com forward slash a need to read. Now the podcast is also sponsored by Heights. Heights are an all-in-one brain care supplement. The data on the amount of adults in the UK who are fully nourishing their brains is kind of shocking. It seems to be that None of us are really doing it with statistics above 90% of people who aren't feeding their brain the right stuff. So just like with everything, like you'd have a whey protein shake or like you'd supplement with anything else, that is what Heights is for. They're a science-driven company and it does really work. I've had reductions in anxiety, improved sleep and my focus is better, which is ideal because it used to be all over the place. So if you are keen on getting your brain in the right shape head to the link in the description use the code need to read with the number two and not the word and you will get 10 percent off of any subscriptions now, however you're listening i hope you enjoyed my conversation with tessa dunlop thank you again for for coming on to chat about your new book army girls i think it's uh it's not anything i ever considered that there would have been women that had contributed to the war and I think that is the fault of of probably the media and maybe my ignorance but why 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 didn't they get that much publicity there there are several reasons actually Ed it's a good question war um historically has been seen as something in the 20th century that if you just look at the female experience actually propels women forward in some way. So at the end of the First World War, you got the 1918 emancipation for some women, the enfranchisement of women over 30, ironically, those who hadn't really contributed so much to the war effort, but never mind. Um, And then, although at the end of the Second World War, there was no sort of significant feminist watershed, there was this um, sense that those girls who had been, who had experienced being, you know, either part of the military or roped into service in some way, because we'll talk about Mm. this um, first and only time that conscription was introduced, there is this idea that they had a sort of liberating experience, although it was circumscribed to a greater extent. Now, the reason why we don't talk about that, and academics can spend hours boring you on this, is because if you then look at the male experience in war, it Mm. muscles out what women achieve. Why? Because in the last two world wars, the heroes, i.e. those who are sacrificing potentially their lives, are men, 99% of the time. And it's called, actually, academics even have a name for it. They call it the helix effect, where men 
go two steps forward and women just one step forward. So what's the narrative? The narrative is the male one. Yeah. Um, and coming back from the war, it doesn't matter that women have done things they've never imagined doing in their life before. Men are given their lives. The heroes are coming back home. It's jobs for the boys, girls down those tools and get back into the house, which, by the way, is exactly what happened after the Second World War, because a lot of people think of the Attlee government, this first Labour government. Uh, you'll know probably that Winston Churchill was lost his office in you know, the Conservatives. Mm. Um, although it was a national wartime government, but uh, Winston Churchill, the Conservative leader, loses office in just after the war in 1945. And um, Attlee, this Labour government, uh, comes in. It's not about equality. It is about redistribution. You have the great birth of the NHS, of course, um, under, under Attlee and so forth in the late 40s. But the beverage report is clear. Women breed for Britain, quite literally. You know, we've lost the flower yeah. of our male youth. Get to, get yoked um, and wow. do your bit. <laughs> Um, and in fact, women got married after the war younger than they had done at any point in the interwar period. The average age of a bride crashing down the aisle was 22 years old, led, of course, by um, HRH Elizabeth uh, to oh. her dear Philip, who is, of course, a war hero. So um, th th there was very much um, this idea that it it's, it's still a man's game. And yeah. women were very reluctantly roped in and their narrative was... Um, overshadowed by the male one. And the other thing that, am I talking too much? Is this, uh, should no, I no, stop no. now? But I just want to make no, no. the final point. Don't, don't you worry. Point. I'm, I'm cool to interrupt. <laughs> you, you, you carry on. <laughs> so, and, and a final point to make is um, after the Second World War, of course, Britain has got sort of inferiority complex. You've got yeah. massive superpower Russia, massive superpower America. Where are we in the world? We're shedding empire, like left, right and centre. Yeah. So we're even losing the kind of rule Britannia aspect. Yeah. So what do we do? We big up our war narrative. So in the 50s and 60s, you get all those amazing, epic, super masculine war films. Yeah. reminding us of the heroes the boys you know, bridge over the real quiles so that you can name you can tr tr trot them out but they're at almost exclusively about a male hero narrative this is kind of yeah. boy's own terrain bigging us up on the on the world stage it wouldn't do to say hey and girls did something too you know that would kind of totally undermine the whole thing my god so yeah. it's taken decades for the revisionism to kick in not to say you know women what's interesting on on death I have a no I won't ask you to guess it's kind of gratuitous actually but I just write about women in the in the army this is the biggest service yeah. um in the second world war for women and it was the one that required conscription um and um in this service which employed um nearly 300,000 girls and they were girls they, they were pretty young um 770 girls died now, they weren't all shot by the enemy but they died while they were serving if you yeah. look at the equivalent statistic for Britain's 10-year conflict in Afghanistan, for all British personnel, less than 500 died in a 10-year yeah. war. So that's how the optics of war have changed. We don't consider female loss in a service capacity in the Second World War, really. We think, yeah, women served. We know that now. Yeah. But I don't think we consider. But actually, the level of fatality for a conflict that was almost ha half the length yeah. totally outshadows what happens in Afghanistan because actually our... Our, our nation's capacity to manage loss has, has changed staggeringly. Can yeah. you imagine if a quarter of a million men were, were killed in some conflict? They just wouldn't, we, we, we wouldn't nuts. stand for it. We yeah. wouldn't, the public wouldn't stand for it, actually, funnily enough. It would be, there'd be very different optics. And that's partly about 24-7 press and yeah. so on and so forth. Yeah. So, mm. so women's deaths out, outnumbered those in Afghanistan. And I feel like maybe people have this idea about the world wars of just like, lots of people died and it was just a, an expected thing right as in like we think of the yeah. world war we think of all the death we think of like the victory for britain i mean obviously we did win but like that's that's the like way that we paint it all the films now like even now we sort of glamorize the war in a sense like saving private ryan's pretty brutal but it paints the picture of these war heroes sort of running onto the beach and and i've i've been to the normandy landings before i, I imagine you've you've been at some point and it's a very eerie place and i guess that's what people's attention is is drawn to we celebrate d-day we celebrate um remembrance day and it's it does it overshadows like what what women would have done and three hundred thousand. is it's not a small well, amount of people but, but, but it's interesting as well because what 
we tend to right. We do lionize. I think there's a danger when we remember the Second War. There's the danger of lionizing conflict because it's very much the uncomplicated war we fought. Um, i.e. the right war against yeah you know, morally we're like yeah that's regime. okay it makes sense yeah whereas <laughs> more recent wars have been um, more questionable politically or have been more divisive politically yeah. the second world war was an, uh, an unusual case for britain not for other countries it must be said where um we pr- were pretty much united behind a common enemy and that was including scotland and england and wales you know so it was it, it was an extraordinary sort of high noon of britishness but you mentioned the D-Day landings. What's fascinating about that narrative is, again, it's a male one. You're right, it's de- de- depicted, you know, those are boys going on the beaches. And I know because the women I write about, 17 women in my book, incidentally, girls mainly, they were all just teenagers in their very early 20s. Um, a couple of them had men, boyfriends, who were landing on those beaches in the first and second wave. And not only did they have men who were landing on those beaches, they had been typing up the troop manoeuvres. So they knew exactly the role that their partner, partner, they wouldn't have used that expression then, yeah. their boys <laughs> would, have been, <laughs> would have been partaking in. So there was this whole, this massive organism, this military organism was minutely connected. And you cannot put one point... Five million men onto a continent via a few beaches, maximizing out to two million by the end of that summer without the support of women. So the ATS is the Auxiliary Territorial Service. It's the female armed force, the sister service, if you like, to the British Armed Forces. They are absolutely the organizational muscle behind that avalanche of men for not only for getting them there, so whether it's, you know, driving the, the trucks to get them down to the right part of the coast, whether it's sorting their kit bags, whether it's feeding them really prosaic stuff, but all of it essential in a military context, yeah. whether it's typing up their troop maneuvers or whether it's going with them once you get the first couple of waves and you establish your bridgehead to support them when they're on the continent. So in a clerical capacity, an administrative capacity and replacing men who might be needed who are doing those jobs, feeding them, looking after them, laundering their clothes. There were 30,000 orderlies in the ATS, i.e. domestic servants. An orderly is effectively a servant in the female army. There were also yeah. male orderlies, it would be said. So I think it's, um, it's worth bearing in mind um, that you can't get, you know, you need backup. And, yeah. and if you've mobilized all your men, how do you get that back up? You get that back up by mobilizing women. Now, the problem was the public opinion, A, didn't want women to be mobilized because this is girls. We are so, yeah. Do you think nowadays, Ed, I mean, you look considerably younger than me, darling. But um, <laughs> Moisturizer. Uh, I've got good moisturizer, Tessa. Do you? Yes. <laughs> um, oh, no. That, my, that is one of my, look, Charlotte Vett, that is one of my veterans calling me. She's actually Betty. Oh, in the bless book. her. She goes, she goes by two names. I'm just going to answer this live on your podcast oh, and tell right. her I'll call Perfect. her in a bit. Oh, no, I've just, oh, I've rejected the call accidentally. Oh, I'll call her. I've <laughs> get the wrong. God, I'm such a Luddite. Worse than she is. Anyway, she's Betty in the book. She worked at Bletchley Park, a very unusual case of an ATS woman um, serving in Bletchley Park. Um, yeah, I'd like to hear of, about Bletchley Park yeah. as well, because I know you've written a book on, on that. And I, I have. Ignorance is, I have no idea what it is. <laughs> Ed. But don't bum my Bletchley Girls book because actually this one's better written. You do learn what you're doing when you write. You have to start writing early, girls and boys, because then you, you improve. It's like the nursery slope. My Bletchley Girls book is actually my best-selling book, but I'm a bit embarrassed because when I look at it, I had to do some research and I read three bits of it yesterday and I was like, oh, gosh, did I really write that? Anyway, oh, The writer's inner critic is yeah, it's not the good. <laughs> I know. Well, somebody said you should never undermine your nursery experience. You, know, you should embrace it. Anyway, um, what was I going to say? I was going to say a really salient point about these girls. Yeah. So so th- we didn't want to put them in uniform. Um, I know I was going to say you're much younger than me. But nowadays we talk about sort of, you know, we're trying to erase gender difference. I think it's erroneous that because female biology is so different from male biology that in some ways yeah. it's a disservice to women to pretend we're the same. We're not the same, girlfriends. But um, the equality narrative demands that nowadays where we can, we minimize difference. Whereas then I was very struck by this just how fundamental it was to the bedrock of society that we identified male and female as different from each other yeah. and kept them as separate as possible. What are masculine men fighting for if the feminine idyll back at home is fighting alongside them? Can you see how yeah. that would fry their brains? Well, it's the so princess who needs saving. It's, yes, it's been in story exactly. for centuries. Like That's why people would yes. have convinced themselves it was a good idea to go. If, like, of course, Hitler was a bad person, but if you had no one to save, like... 
yes, people would rather it. save their mums and their sisters and their wives than they would themselves, probably. I think yes. that's what love and does. So that's the that's one aspect. There was a huge concern. Winston Churchill didn't want to... Um, what's the word Winston Churchill did not want to conscript women and uh, neither did the defense committee because they thought it would demoralize men okay. what does that word mean conscript because you, you've, you've said it a couple of times I just want to clarify well, it, um, conscript is when you uh, uh, is obligation so okay. that means women have to serve it's the first time we, we ever asked and it's exactly the debate the maximum national effort debate was kicked off in parliament and I know you probably play off podcast that was a slight lag time but today the 2nd of December Churchill, having always said he didn't want to conscript women, kicks off the debate on December the 2nd, 1941, um, arguing that we now had to conscript women, initially aged between 20 and 30. It was too controversial to say they had to go into an armed force, heavens above, to insist a woman goes into a uniform service. So instead, um, they gave the caveat girls could, in fact, also work in a munitions factory. Even worse, horror for yeah, most girls. Right. They like scrambled to join the ADS. They were like, get me out of here in terms of working in a munitions factory. But yeah, it was the first and only time we've done that. And it was a sign of just how much our backs were against the wall in 1941. You, you know, yeah. you've got to do something about this, guys. So that was a very important moment in our in our history. And Churchill, yeah. it was a U-turn. It was a Churchill U-turn, but nobody ever talks about it because all Churchill's biographers are men. So they all yeah. look at, a few days later, America enters the war, there's a bomb in the Pearl Harbor, hey-ho. Why would you look at conscription for women? It's it's not, doesn't feed that masculine narrative. It's but funny it how it does that. Important. Yeah, yeah, that was hugely important. Mm-hmm. And so I no one, funnily enough, nobody, not even the WRAC, between you and me, knew about this anniversary until I went and said, because I knew about it because I'd written about the Bletchley girls. So, of course, once you start conscripting women, there's a sort of formula almost to pulling women forward. And then you get greater numbers. And if you get greater numbers, you can make more, be more selective about the girls you have for different roles. Um, and um, it's been overlooked as an anniversary. But uh, we, we've kind of got it on the map, I think, in the last four weeks. I've exhausted. I mean, Charlotte's just wrong <laughs> with Betty. But, but a lot of them are like, God, we need vapors test. They were on BBC One. <laughs> we're on Channel Five. Oh, I'm like, get it out there but it's interesting because the entire book is just exclusively told around the story of these 17 extant women so the youngest was 96 and the oldest 102 um in lockdown four died i'm very sad to say it's the first time oh. in the book died on me yeah that's a different that's a weird writing experience because yeah, curating, yeah curating a book with people's narratives normally i check off what i've written to make sure they're happy and of course if the person's dead you can't do that so um you know, and also there's a sort of feeling when you write a book with living um, subjects, it's, there's, a, there's an element of celebration when you go forward to publish it all together. You know, it's kind of fun, yeah. like being in a team. So it's very sad when some of them don't, you know, don't oh. aren't there. But of course, if you're working with the very elderly, that that is one of the pit, possible yeah. pitfalls. Well, you've solidified them now in history. So I'm, I'm sure if, there, if, yeah. if there is such a thing, I'm sure they'll have having a good time up there thinking, yeah, I'm in a book now. Hopefully, life, yeah. Life I think that also there. Maybe that was it. That was Maybe good. that was like, well, I'm going to be in a book. Nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> they can chill out, chill out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Maybe, but just quick on the conscription thing. You're right about why men's experiences are seen to be more exciting. Although, uh, well, I was very lucky because I got access to two fannies, and these were first aid nursing yeomanry. Did you know that it's a funny was name, Matt? Isn't it a fanny? Did you find my fannies in the book? Did you? I, I've seen some fannies in the book. Yeah. <laughs> yes, good. I hope you enjoyed reading about my fannies. Um, they uh, they were the sort of elite wing. It's very, very, the other thing, that okay, one is it's gender bound and the other is it's class bound. As Anne said, who was a junior commander in the Second World War, she said, you know, the, cl- the class was used as a recruiting tool and there is no getting away from that, however uncomfortable we find it. Society yeah. was sexist. It was um, classist, uh, racist. You know, that is what society was. And you can't flinch from the reality of that when you're writing about it um however uncomfortable um you know and and what's interesting is how the women have been on their own journeys as well in in terms of those experiences you know they're brought up thinking one thing and if you're still alive you you know nearly 100 years later you you probably will have in order to be alive and with it normally these women i mean these women aren't they're outliers they're, they're, yes. you know, to have survived that long. They, they're exceptional women. So they tend to have a sort of conte- have traveled in a contemporary fashion. Um, and, they struck and me as quite often... stoic. 
you know. Yeah. And, and if you ask any gentrologist to get to 95 plus, you're normally exceptional. You've got exceptional life habits. You normally retain ambition. You have multi-generational friendships. So I'm not talking to a bog standard sample of women who served in the ATS. I'm yeah. talking to exceptional women. But the fanny in the ATS was this. It didn't want to be in the ATS. It considered itself above them. But it was a voluntary organization established after the Boer War at the turn of the century. And um, they were an elite brigade. You had to own your own horse to be in the fanny. To um, I know, darling. Um, that divides have... the classes, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And we're not talking about Dob and the donkey. Um, yeah. So they are pretty cool um, and posh. Um, and by the Second World War, they are in, in, in sort of included into this umbrella, ATS umbrella, so they can be paid, so sort of administratively they can be managed. Yeah. Um, but they have some pretty cool jobs with the SOE, the Special Operations Executive and things like that, which um, what weren't available to the ATS. And, and that's people, it's amazing to me how people get all excited about, you know, fannies and their role with the SOE, which were, was the organisation, you know, w- w- uh, that was established in 1940. Churchill saying, you know, set Europe ablaze and it placed and parachuted in uh, agents, often foreign born agents behind enemy lines. It was about keeping the sort of flame of resistance alive during the war. And um, more of a like a surface, like this isn't a big attempt. This is just like a we're going to throw you stuff just so that you know we're, we're coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to keep, yeah, to keep the flame of resistance. If you think how many countries the Nazis occupied. And also it did help to an extent with, say, um, the Normandy landings, the D-Day landings, you know, yeah. if you've got uh, French people blowing train lines so that panzer divisions can't get to the coast as quickly as they'd otherwise be able to, et cetera, that is, yeah. that's helpful. Um, and also just to keep morale up in those occupied countries, again, is is essential. But it was a highly risky business. But p- people are always keyed into those kind of roles that the women did, where actually I found, I'm writing about these um, girls, um, some of the sort of the the, the day, their day-to-day jobs, the letters they gave me access to the most extraordinary cachet of letters they'd written as teenage girls, just wow. going into the mindset of that period and what it was like to replace a man. And most of them were replacing men, of course, that's why they were called up on a gun site, say, you know, so if you think we're, we're being bombed overhead, so you need to have your anti-aircraft guns trying to repel any enemy ra- raiders yeah. that are coming in, the Luftwaffe, and then later the V. The, the V1 and 2 threat was only really the doodlebugs actually that they managed to down, but they did um, over two thirds of doodlebugs were shot down before they reached London. It was had a very high rate of success actually. The, That's pretty good. The, really. the, the Royal Artillery, yeah, the AA command by the end of the war. And that was, and they kept the term, those anti-aircraft sites were predominantly manned by women by the end of the war, but the girls weren't allowed to fire the gun. You weren't allowed yeah, to pull the trigger. I saw that in, in your book. It's, it's yeah. a bit weird, isn't it? Like it's, I mean, it's it's offensive now, but obviously maybe back then that was kind of just what, what was expensive. As in like, just to say, oh, you you, you can't do this. I think um, now if, if someone was to say to me, you can't do this because you're a man on a roll, I'd be like, well, I mean, like I can push that button. I'm pretty capable. But I guess that kind of like, that resistance wasn't, it's not about okay. yeah it wasn't yeah. it wasn't it was interesting i saw four women i worked with were on the anti-aircraft gun sites and they didn't find it um um offensive at all uh, yeah. because they are part of the traditional bedrock of society which perceives men and women as different as vera says yeah. age 99 but pulling the trigger of a gun loading a gun carrying a shell is a manly thing to do well of course it's yeah. manly if only men do it which was the whole point yeah. we needed to keep our male heroes there and our feminine girls there we need to put girls in uniform so it's about squaring the circle okay yeah. we need inconveniences or we need to conscript women we didn't want to church didn't want to do that we're going to have to do it but we want to keep them as different and as separate as we can get away with yeah okay, okay. so we're going to put them on these gun sites and there's cutting edge technology think drone warfare today what yeah. you're doing when you've got a gun and a static gun that you're trying to um, f- fire into a sky with an enemy aeroplane overhead, which is a moving target. Think how difficult it is, the lag time to hit oh, that the moving angles target. angles of that. Some yeah. serious Pythagoras so need- going on. Yeah, serious. So you've got radar by the end of the war, you've got predictors, you've got height finders, absolutely revolutionary tech, likewise at Bletchley Park, by the way. And who is operating this tech? Girls are. They, and it's no coincidence that nowadays in America, the drone queens, mainly mainly women, by the way, operating 
the drone warfare, which is highly contentious, of course, because the press of a button, you're detonating and potentially killing yeah. thousands of, of, of people. But it's, it, but it's always had a, a feminine pull post-war. And I wonder if that isn't because early on, these mixed gun sites, they were revolutionary. Men and women yeah. serving alongside each other, girls operating tech. And the, lead, the head of AA commands, General Sir Frederick Pyle, made it really, really clear. You know, from the, before the war, he knew he'd need girls. It took him until 1941 to persuade the government. And what he does is he runs tests with a female engineer before the war. And she goes, yes, girls can manage to do this. Although, of course, not firing the gun because she knows she's got to be, you know, hedge around yes, thinking yeah. at the time. And then when all the rubbish men he gets to come and work in AA command, because if you're a young lad like you, Ed, you'd be wanting yeah. to go and fight in North Africa, even if you might get your Genganguli yeah. shot off. That was know. where the heroes would be. I'd be a conscientious objector. I'd probably try and sit and Tell meditate you. somewhere, wait it out. Would you? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you'd been a German conscientious objector, you'd have got a bullet in the back. So just, yeah. you'd be lucky you're British. I mean, if I, I was a German conscientious objector, I'd yeah. have preferred that. <laughs> I tell you what. <laughs> the Germans didn't have any truck. I'm telling you what, at the end no. of the war, they were rounding up everyone. My God, it was a nightmare yeah. being German if you were anti-war. Absolute nightmare. But it wasn't. It was a death sentence, actually. But um, for, the, for a British lad, he's, he's going off. He's sent off to the front line if he's fit, young and with it. Yeah. So what Pyle's saying is by 1941, look, one in 25 of my men isn't, isn't fit for operation. He's got a glass eye. When he doubles up to the guns, it falls out. He's got thumbs that don't work. He's in the latter stages of the venereal disease. He's got all these duds. And so yeah. you places them with these much more able young girls and they're all given by 1941 because we realized you know you give lots of expensive tech you need someone who knows how to operate it yeah. and these are life and death decisions they're making they're all selected and tested and tested and so all the girls even irrespective of class interestingly by this stage you know yeah you're more likely to get to officer class if you go to a boarding school or something yeah, yeah. but actually if you get an interesting job it's partly about the availability of at the time but it's also how you perform in the selection tests yeah so like if you're the bright psychometrics girl, and stuff yeah yes but, yeah. And actually, if you're a bright girl, it doesn't really matter if you know grammar or not. It's about sort of what they'd call now um, non-verbal reasoning. Tests like yeah. that were given to these girls and depending how they performed, there was a job for everyone. Of course, you were dunked down yeah. with being an orderly if, if, if you didn't cut, cut muster in the tests or if there wasn't a job going that, you know, that, that needed you. Wow. So, so it was like a case of just like, right, let's, let's just get get people in um you mentioned the book and something i want to touch on because a lot of people in terms of most recent war films dunkirk is going to be the one that people like because you know it's got harry styles in it he's really handsome i've watched dunkirk, <laughs> I've watched dunkirk. yeah 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 and you speak yeah. of olivia in the book um and her experience at dunkirk of just not being allowed on a ship and i just want to chat about the the male treatment of women in, in yes. the war because that seems unjust now <laughs> Dear reader, doesn't Edward do his homework? 10 out of 10. <laughs> yes, um, funnily enough, I had to contribute to a Channel 5 documentary about Dunkirk, which is why I watched Harry Styles. And my daughter, he's like, why are you always watching war films, Mum? She thinks I really um, let her down. So Mara comes in to watch this documentary, age 13, and then she sees Harry Styles and watches it right to the end. I'm like, what is that about some dud pop star just because he's in a war movie? You want to watch it? That was so disappointing to me. But anyway, actually, there were bits of the film that weren't totally ridiculous but it was an almost exclusively male cast you would yeah. have noted and rightly so because in the bfe the british expeditionary force that was sent over to france and massively failed in its mission the french and the british you know totally overrun by the germans they yeah. could put they're kicked out the arse end of um dunkirk back to britain and actually because it was so unlikely they'd managed to escape somehow we turn a defeat into a victory in our heads you know and keep the morale high and churchill yeah. talks it up um that, they, they, so they were our boys. And in fact, several of my women in the book, you know, they, Daphne lost her first cousin in France that summer and that absolutely steeled her for wanting to serve. Uh, my problem was in a book where all the women had to be alive, finding a girl who was young enough, who was, who was at that time serving in 1940, because conscription yeah. comes a year and a half later. Um, and by that, you have to be really old to have served. And also it was highly unusual because there were, there were ATS girls in France in a supportive role, but there weren't that many. And I was very lucky to find Olivia. Um, but ironically enough, she was a British girl, but she was serving in the French army and the SSAF, the Section Sanitaire Automobile Feminine, um, oh, which was like good. the... 
I know that was like the fanny that was like the, the fanny in England it was sort of a classy brigade of girls who did a spot of nursing and drove ambulances and she goes off sort of very disconsolate that the phony war isn't really um, demonstrating or happening so she yeah. nips off to France to stay with her friend Veronique as you do and suddenly gets roped into this French war effort when they come pounding in through northeast um, France and she's driving an ambulance into the eye of the storm so she's not evacuated from Dunkirk because actually almost as we're, we're caught in that kind of tunnel, you know, up there on the, um, the, the, wet, the French coast of, um, t- looking onto, onto England, um, yeah. Olivia is in fact driving in the other direction uh, and uh, is dealing with French casualties on the ground. And sometimes because she's got a Red Cross is even dealing with German casualties. Um, and if she has um, an invalid in her ambulance, she's not allowed to stop. So she's forbidden from stopping driving. So you're being strafed from above by the Stuckers and she's not allowed to stop driving. Other people are getting out and jumping into ditches. She can only do that if she doesn't have someone injured in her ambulance. So it's really hairy. And she's classic kind of gung-ho, nothing to lose, 20 years old. She's absolutely thrilled to bits to have stopped having to flower arrange in a mansion in South Southeast England. (laughs) You know, suddenly her life has some purpose because actually whether you're poor or posh, you know, it's a preordained path for girls. Pre-war was pretty goddamn dull. Unless you yeah. had a really sort of forward-thinking, blue-stocking mother, unlikely. You know, you were maybe going to be a shop assistant, then get married and have babies. And yeah. in Olivia's case, you weren't even going to get to be a shop assistant. You just stayed at home and flower arranged and maybe met the queen once and then and yeah. then got married to a posh bloke. So suddenly there she is, dri- f- driving in the, into the face of enemy fire in France, which is... In a way, and she depicted for me a France that I hadn't imagined, because we always hear the British narrative, you know, the, the, the story of Dunkirk, how we get yeah. our British boys out and then reluctantly take a few French. But Olivia's story, she's embedded in the French narrative and France is overturned like an anthill. You know, suddenly you've got the mass exodus of millions of French people heading south, not having a clue what is happening next, scared. Nice. Their armies basically fall apart like a pack of cards. And they've got the jackboot in their country in a way that we never had in Britain. And people are on the roads, you know, she's having to drive an ambulance. She can't get past because there's people carrying some donkeys and bird cages. And it's like insane. Essentials only. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So it's, it's absolutely insane what she experiences. And she heads south. And of course, things move really fast. So she's, if you think Dunkirk's further north, she then, um, I think she gets to somewhere like Bordeaux. Okay. Um, and she's met, the, she's still with the SSFA. So she's in a French uniform. She's part of this with these other girls. It's incredibly exciting. They live off sort of chocolate bars and constipation for about a week and a half. And um, when she arrives in Bordeaux, which is swell, I think it's sort of five times its normal size, and the Germans haven't arrived there yet, um, she's told she's no longer welcome, thanks very much, because the French are about to sign the armistice, which is going to carve up France, you're going to have Vichy France, of course, and occupy France. And she's a British girl. So she then has to find her own way home alone. Right. Now, if you think of her, she's pacing down the coast alone. I'm still in a French uniform, bizarrely, but with no money or papers, trying to get out of um, France before the French guillotine falls. I think it's the 25th of somebody, one of your listeners is going to correct me here, the 25th of June when the French signed the armistice with Germany. She has to get out before then. All right. And she does not consider getting out Franco's Spain. That would be the soft option. God, no. So wow. she gets to Saint-Jean de Cruz, I think it's called. And again, I think somebody's going to correct me on that. Sounds good. Who um, cares? It's a very, um, <laughs> it's the very southern tip of France. And um, finally, enough, a lot of Poles are overridden who've also been fighting their way across France. A huge number of sort of flotsam and jetsam of the military. Because I think we think the Dunkirk and that's it. No, nobody else needs to be evacuated. That's not the case. There was mass evacuation of yeah. people across to Britain for several weeks after Dunkirk, which happens very early in June. It's late May, June. But actually, the, the armistice isn't signed till late June. And I think she gets out something like the 23rd of June. I'd have to check in the book. And um, when she's she's taken out across this quite choppy bay, she I mean she's on a train and then she gets a motorbike. She's never ridden a motorbike. It overheats. Like Indiana she, Jones, she but cooler. Absolutely, <laughs> she was the best start I could have ever had to my book. I God, I love her. Anyway, she's dead. I hate to tell you. Oh shit. She died in August. Damn it. Yeah, I love Olivia, <laughs> but she was pretty old, and I think she was ready to go. She was waiting for Godot, but she had a yeah. great archive, and she was really even at 102 enjoyed talking about smashing. She had a well-lived life, by the sound of it. She I did. think yeah. escaping well, the Nazis on a motorbike yeah. is 
is cooler than most things yeah. you can do nowadays. <laughs> and also, what was she was always very tickled by this very poor relations between the French and the Brits, which persists today. And the French and English, it's particularly an English problem, I think, with the French. Um, and of course, post Brexit, she was kind of like, this is almost like the war, because in the war, of course, the French felt we'd let them down, leaving them. And we felt they'd let us down, not fighting properly. You know, there was this kind of, you know, and then she gets, when she eventually, oh, so you're right. So then she, gets across and tries to climb up onto this rope ladder with terrible swell, gets up onto the deck of this troop ship. And it's a British, uh, there's a British captain. He goes, no, you can't come on board this troop ship. There's no accommodation for women. You're like, double teenage, Nah. You know, what? you know, literally two days later, the Germans are going to come and bomb this bay. And you're telling me that this girl has to get back off your ship because of her gender. But that was the case. Eventually, she does find a space on a troop ship uh, with predominantly a destroyer, I think it was, um, with predominantly poles. And she and she's got a red cross on her sleeve. So she she gives some dried biscuits. I mean, she, you know, the whole thing is extraordinary kind of spontaneous response to war. And she gets back to Plymouth, where, of course, they think she's French because of her uniform. And yeah. she's given this letter because Charles de Gaulle who's the general who of course refuses to bend his neck to the Vichy regime he's come to London on this kind of you know French mission he's hardly known at the time and French um Churchill initially gives him his backing they fall out like yeah. cat and dog later I've heard I've, I've she, actually read recently about de Gaulle not in your book somewhere else I think yeah. I think it might have been prisoners of geography Tim Marshall he's chatting about um oh God, I can't remember now yeah, he's a fascinating character. It's really <laughs> worth further investigating. Of course, he's massively tall. Olivia's tiny. She rocks up to his, he's been given this tiny office in the armpit of the government and he's feeling really peed off. You know, you know, everyone's moaning about the French and, and none of those French, all the French that have come over, he desperately needs to encourage some of them to stay that have come from the Dunkirk evacuation, you know, to fight with his French, the free French, and not to recognise this awful compromised Vichy regime. And he does, he has terrible English, even in her very last days, Olivia loved telling me, De Gaulle spoke terrible English. And of course, she spoke rather good English, being posh. You know, she'd been to France a few times and had a French governess. So she spoke very good French and I was bilingual effectively. And so she becomes his translator and daddy lends her his car. So she's sort of De Gaulle's movement has this um, young uh, English girl driving them around and translating for them. So she had, yeah, she was an extraordinary person to be able to feature. And she solved the problem of early on in the war, who was going to kickstart that narrative, because a lot of my girls were still at school at the beginning of the war. That's what's yeah. interesting. This is a generation of girls who grow up at, you know, they grow up um, at, um, they grow up. Uh, through this war period um, and so, so they start age sort of 13 hearing about war breaking out and by 18 they're in uniform away from home um, despite oh, what their parents say yeah it goes so on a bit we think coronavirus has gone on but you think how long the war went on for nearly six yeah. years really mm. it's such a like a, it, it's really I know it kind of would have led from like your first couple of books but it's so good that you've like told this story of of Olivia like because that is a really interesting cool inspiring you name it story about someone who's just like nah fuck how everyone does things I'm gonna do it this way yeah and what's interesting I love those is people. I love her. you you wouldn't yeah of course Olivia's great I mean I, I, funnily enough I got her an obituary in The Guardian. And I was really pleased because I think The Guardian's a bit sniffy about writing about posh women who fought in World War II, you know, because they don't really like lionizing the war. And, you know, obviously yeah. she, was she was privileged in the context of her birth and, and et cetera, but actually she was also heavily discriminated against because she was a girl. And these so was Nightingale in terms of yeah. like, if, we, if we're going to point the privileged fingers at this, mm. you can I'm find afraid. anyone in that position. Yeah. I, yeah, and I'm afraid a lot of, of, of girls, especially in the first part of the war who did, um, have a, an, an extraordinary or an alternative experience often did um, come with a privileged background because that meant they spoke German or French or had money or contacts or, you know, Educated. finishing off on the continent. Yeah. yeah. A lot of posh girls went to, to Munich to be finished until the late 1930s. The Mitford sisters, you know, weren't an exception. That was part of a trend. And in fact, yeah. Olivia went to Germany in 1937, darling, and was in the same tea room as Hitler because posh girls did that sort of thing. And one of my yeah. favourite Bletchley girls who died actually just a couple of months ago, aged a staggering 103, um, she also um, was in Munich 
um, in in between the wars being finished. I mean, that, that was just sort of par for the course. And more posh schoolgirls spoke German than members of our cabinet. You know, it was a, it was a really? paucity of German spoken at high levels. Yeah. But um, going back to the Olivia narrative, what's interesting is speaking. And that's why oral history is fascinating. It's one of the most vivid memories in her head. Mm. And um, the reason being is because what comes after the war is pretty dull. Marriage yeah. and children. That's it for that generation. You know, the bra burning are their children. So the change comes when these women who are defined in war give birth and bring up their own children. And there's yeah. a different set of messages. And I just, and I seriously believe that while they couldn't change their own destiny post-war, I mean, some did a bit, but they could pass on that message to their daughters. It's no coincidence they gave birth to the bra burners. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. And it's, they played a pretty important role. Yeah, it was vital. There were more, but um, Barbara. So in the book, and um, there's this wonderful woman, Barbara, who um, trained in the same place as the Queen, Camberley. Don't you know she's from Yorkshire, Barbara? Well, of course, unlike the Queen, <laughs> not so I actually stayed in barracks. <laughs> no, not she weren't posh, but there were some very, very posh fannies who were training us to drive. She was a driver, and the Queen was training there. And she said, but unlike the Queen, I stayed in barracks. Um, and in the barracks, there was a prostitute and a lesbian. Well, you can imagine how it went down in 1943. But um, yeah. the Queen uh, had to go back to her castle every night. So wouldn't have been exposed to those same poor, real poor Liz. <laughs> poor Elizabeth. Just, just social she... isolation is disgusting. I, I, don't know. Know how I know it's a bit cruel. She did. I think she'd have loved it, don't you? But she did learn to drive, and driving was one of the more glamorous things that a girl could do. But um, I want. Why did I quickly leap onto Barbara? There was a reason why I quickly took you to Barbara. I wanted to say something very important about that. About oh yeah, Barbara always wants to remind everyone who's listening um, that there were more women um, involved in the war effort, 7.5 million women there in fact there were men. Um, whether wow. it was in the VS, the voluntary service and ARP, the air raid uh, protection um, shelters, you know, on every level, you know, whether it was organizing evacuees, you know, mm. women were absolutely crucial to the machinery of war. But in terms of their their service, their military service, this was an unprecedented period. And funnily enough, between wars, there was a refusal to allow women to remain in a peacetime military service. After the Second World War, that's changed. So by 1946, we've instigated in law that there will be a peacetime female air force, naval service and armed force. They won't be allowed to be armed, but that's beside the point. The other really interesting yeah. thing that I wanted to say quickly that I, did, I went off on of a tangent as per usual. We were talking about the, we jumped about a bit on the timeline in this conversation, didn't we? But in 1944, the D-Day landings. About. Is that all right? Just to mess it up a yeah, bit, mix right. it up. So 1944, um, the big deal was we needed many more women to support the Allied um, effort on the continent. Okay, so there was a real need for more soldier, um, female soldiers on the continent. And there was a shortage of numbers and not because the girls weren't willing, but because their parents wouldn't let them go. So they had to, initially they had to be volunteers and they had to have a letter of permission from either mummy or daddy or their husband. Wait for it. Oh, and those nice. weren't forthcoming. So only one in 30 girls got those letters. So in the end, we directed women overseas. So by February 45, when everyone's thinking, oh, peace times, we, uh, the government once again is reluctantly saying, no, your daughters have to go overseas, no matter if they're, you know, no matter if they're going to be yeah. heavily outnumbered by men who will grope them. By the way, groping was a big theme in the book. Yeah, and, I've, and I've editor, seen that. It's, that? <laughs> it's not great. And, like, and the women are so stoic about it. I'm like... It's so shit that they had to put up with that. I, <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing because we're still looking into there was a massive defense committee investigation this year that there's still oh. bullying and harassment goes on of women and they don't talk about it. And what's really interesting is Anne in my book was like, I think we've talked about sex too much. But I'm like, Anne, you were employed aged 18 to police other girls older than you to make sure they weren't petting at night. How can we not talk about this? Then yeah. Anne was early on recruited to go overseas. She was in Italy. She was stationed in Italy. And she was given a special interview to make sure she'd know how to handle men when they came at her. Because and we're not talking about enemies. We're not talking about those perfidious Italians and Germans. We're talking about allied soldiers who've been fighting in North Africa, who've come up through Sicily, who haven't seen a woman. They haven't had a bit of skirt for nigh yeah. on a year or so and may be killed tomorrow up in the mountains. So guess what? They want to grope. Yeah, the you know, morals aren't there. Ha- Didn't you say it's the, they were, the trucks were too small, so like the women were forced to sit on their laps yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Got Ed's read all of this. Book, ladies and gentlemen, 
I said, my gold standard, <laughs> gold standard. Yeah, absolutely. So she had to, I mean, she was a vicar's daughter. I tell you what, they're going to rap on their knuckles as they tried a bit of feely with her. But um, and what was interesting was, of course, also the girls' letters that, that I had access to. So Jean is writing, she's with the SOE. She's a fanny in, in, uh, in Egypt and then Italy. And she's having a terrible time. Oh, I do hate it when they think they can kiss you after a dance. You know, and they're trying to do more than kissing. I'm telling you right now. Yeah. And she's writing this back to her sister. This is, and the reason it's such a nightmare, not only is it a nightmare because you don't want a man groping if you don't want him groping you that's an age-old yeah. you know we know that yeah. but they're brought up to sort of think they it's their fault that they've encouraged the men um they, they also have no access to any form of contraception so even if they relent i mean you know it, it's not really consensual but if they do you know if they get pregnant yeah. They are the ones that are disbanded from the service, not the men. There is actually an investigation, a parliamentary investigation into rumours derogatory to the service. It's one of the reasons why this investigation is set up in 1942, the Markham Committee, to look into the standards of, the, of women in the service. An equivalent isn't, looked, isn't um, established standards to look into male behaviour. Yeah, so it's about women are maintaining... Oh. Uh, uh, it's about women not being promiscuous, OK? Because men are heroes. It's about yeah. women managing men. That's where the onus lies. And you can still see that hangover today in many respects. Oh, definitely. It's I think like it's it's only just getting to the point of like, right, yeah. what can men do to make women feel safer? It's not just like, how yeah. can you feel safer on your on your walk home? You can do this to make yourself feel safer. It's like, yeah. hold on, can't can't someone else like, you know, maybe not try to rape me or not try to hit me, like, or not try to kiss yeah. me? Like, wouldn't that maybe be a better idea? But, but what's interesting is in the military, you're trained to think as one, as one, and you're very proud to be in the military. All these women veterans are super proud, and they don't want to undermine the wartime narrative, which we celebrate every single year in Britain. Okay, yeah. so they are very worried when I get out of their letters and go, "God, you keep on talking about dirty old men," you know, and they're all in British uniforms. Whoops, you know, they're like, "Oh no," you know, they're worried because they don't want to undermine that image. Yeah. And actually, I was speaking to Ali, Colonel Ali Brown, former ex-Colonel Ali Brown, who served in the Gulf and in, in Afghanistan. She said, it's really recently where women have realised they don't have to put up with this. They're still yeah. good soldiers if they don't put up with this. And, and actually, it's that idea, because you're trained to think of one, you almost don't want to let the side down, don't want to tarnish the image, don't want to put your head above the parapet. Because in the army, it's about being a part of a team. So if you yeah. stick your head up and complain, where does that leave you as a team player? Can you see how complex it is and how baked in some of the, yeah. the, the behaviours are and some of the reticence about complaining? So that was, for me, that was a fascinating journey. Slightly not depressing, but it was a, it was a salient reminder of these are age-old problems. Yeah. But also the way in which the women were going to allow me to curate that narrative was interesting. You know, Anne eventually agreed, OK, you can leave it in, but I want you to write you know, our, most of the soldiery was really well behaved. So yeah. I wrote that in, you know. And the other thing was, I've just got to add, the Markham Committee, and this is how serious they were about this matter mm. of promiscuity, they counted the number of illegitimate pregnancies outside the service, and they counted the number inside the service to prove that more women were getting illegitimately pregnant out of uniform than in uniform. That is crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's a bit... Um... It's just... That was a benchmark for behaviour. Yeah. You know, getting pregnant was worse than being hit by, by a jerry bullet. I'm almost, yeah. it was sort of a fate worse than death, if, it, it, depending on your kind of backup and the support you might get at home. Your reputation grace, gone, stuff yeah, like that. Gone. Yeah. You'd be you're immediately dismissed and you'd probably be sent to your mother and baby hostel and have to have it and give it away. There were, there were these mother and baby hostels where they would just yeah. be dispatched to. It's brutal. Well, absolutely brutal. Incidentally, that mother and baby hostel thing went on right through to the sixties. We were giving away sixteen to twenty-four thousand babies um, from six weeks old right through into the late sixties when we think it's all about free love. So there's lots of, right. and that's what's interesting when I'm getting to write about these women and and they share beyond their military experience because of course they are young girls coming of age in uniform. So there's the whole you're running a whole gamut of of, of emotion. Yeah. But a lot of this huge hangovers after the war, you know, we're not going to immediately arm women. That's going to take till 2018 when finally they're allowed into every area of the British Army. You know, yeah. that idea of like illegitimate pregnancy being uh, being um, a stigma that's with them for life. You know, these things take decades to examine, to unpick and to try and kind of introduce some parity and normality to a situation that is very natural, really, isn't it? Sex. Yeah. 
Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think should we end well. on the word sex? I'm not sure. Let's end on the word sex. I I, I used to be in the Marines when I was younger for a couple of years. And Did you? Like, not for I, I didn't pass out or anything. I really didn't really oh. enjoy it. But you flaked um, out. You flaked <laughs> yeah, I had about seven different injuries. And I was like, something is trying to tell me something here. Mm. Um, but even just like you, you notice you, you mentioned wrens in the books. Like there was like Navy women on on camp, and it's a, a camp of thousands of men, and it's like there's one woman left it. It's not. It's not. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. it's probably yeah. prevalent today. Like it's 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 a it's meat thing. market, but if yeah. you think, but uh, and Joan writes home. She's an, oh one of my favourites. Just really quickly, because I've got to go to this school. This honestly, yeah, yeah. don't have sick children. Inoculate <laughs> them against every possible disease. Oh, women were always being inoculated in the war. Quite staggeringly, they probably would never leave England, but God, they were injected by every possible disease just in case. <laughs> they constantly had a sore arm. And then Joan, who's 101, goes, "I've just gone for my vaccination, the COVID vaccination." I was just reading in her letters home as she was getting inoculated against typhoid or something. Wow. Eighty years earlier, it's quite funny. There was an also they're very short of blue roll in the war did you know some things don't change Weird. anyway Joan just really quickly she um she was in occupied Germany and you know the men there was sort of 2,000 men to one woman you know and they couldn't fraternize with the Germans the men so that meant poor Joan you know had to kind of resist and she was constantly bothered by this guy who'd be leaving her roses on the desk and tried to contact her parents and she was so good about it nowadays we just give them a big slap across the yeah. chops but, you know, it's just it was a different time, my friends. It was a different yeah. one. It's been my, one of the great privileges of my life, literally um, um, being with these women during lockdown. Uh, it would have been yeah. such a stagnant, boring period with almost archive shut and stuff. And instead, I had this incredibly rich um, furrow to plow. And I'm incredibly wow. lucky. And I hope maybe even one of your listeners might enjoy reading about it. That would be super great. I think there'll be a few, but yeah, it's, uh, it's it's lovely that you did spend your lockdown spending your time with those women. And I'm grateful that you did, because I think it's opened my eyes up to d- different parts of the war that I hadn't seen. And it'll, hopefully it'll do the same for other people as well, because it's something that needs a light shined on. So thank you so much for coming and, and telling the story of these women and, and also just knowing so much. I'm so impressed with how much, you know, I know you're a historian and you're meant to, but it is fucking well impressive. Just the statistics yeah, that just come a, off your, off your head. I'm a doctor in it, mate. Yeah. I'm a doctor who doesn't have a clue about COVID like most other doctors, it would seem. Okay. I'm a doctor of history. Okay. Lots of love and goodbye. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. It's really amazing that that information has skipped a lot of us, as it seems. Uh, so hopefully, if you read the book or if you've enjoyed that podcast, you can tell people about how many women were involved in the war next time that conversation comes up. Um, I'm sure it doesn't come up that often, but when it does, be ready to give the statistics. Now, if you have enjoyed the podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. It really helps grow the podcast and get more people reading or at least get more people listening to the podcast so that I can feel a sense of accomplishment. You know, let's be transparent here. Um, It really does help and it's amazing to see so many people enjoying it. So thank you so much for listening. You are all absolute legends.